0: Welcome to The Tech Humanist Show, a multimedia format program exploring how data and technology shape the human experience. I'm your host, Kate O'Neill. This week, why
1: use new technologies to amplify old historic biases that have kept us trapped?
0: Renee Cummings is a criminologist and international criminal justice consultant who specializes in artificial intelligence, ethical AI, bias in AI, diversity and inclusion in AI, algorithmic authenticity and accountability, data integrity and equity, AI for social good and social justice and AI policy and governance. For seeing trends and anticipating disruptions, she's committed to diverse and inclusive AI strategy development, using AI to empower and transform communities and cultures, securing diverse and inclusive participation in the 4IR, helping companies navigate the AI landscape, and developing future AI leaders. A multicultural cross-connector of multiple fields, evidently, as we can hear, and an innovative collaborator, her passion is forming connections and unifying people and technologies, enhancing quality of life and economic prosperity. She's also a criminal psychologist, therapeutic jurisprudence and rehabilitation specialist, substance abuse therapist, crisis intelligence, crisis communication and media specialist, creative science communicator and journalist. That's an impressive set of skills, if you ask me. She has a solid background in government relations, public affairs, reputation management, and litigation PR. She's a sought-after thought leader, which I can vouch for following her on LinkedIn and Twitter. All I see all day long are like, this is where I'm going to be, this is where I'm going to be. I'm like, how do you have the time and energy in the day? Which is why I'm really, really glad she can join us today. Uh, She's an inspirational, motivational speaker and mentor, which I think you'll get from listening to her today. And Ms. Cummings is also a Columbia University Community Scholar. So with that, please help me welcome Renee Cummings. Renee, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me, Kate. It's certainly an honor and a pleasure to be with you. Oh my god.
0: It's my honor. Thank you. So Renee, after uh, reading that incredible list of accomplishments and distinctions, I also just noticed on LinkedIn earlier this week that you used to be a sportscaster. Is that right? <laughs>
1: That's a, that is true, a very long time ago. That's an amazing career
0: trajectory. How did that happen?
1: Well, I started as a print journalist, and then I went into broadcast. And while I was in broadcast, I've always had this love for sport. And the station that I was working at did not have any woman doing sport. So I saw it as an opportunity to do something different, uh, to have a little more fun on the job and really uh, put women out there on camera doing sport. And uh, it was a fantastic experience. It contributed so much to who I am. And it keeps me alive because I still love sport. And I think it certainly gives me a particular energy that keeps me going.
0: Yeah. Well, you have such a, a presence you have a great voice and presence for being on screen anyway. So I can see where that carries through to this day. What's it like for you now as a fan of sport, watching all of these athletes compete with no audiences? What's that feel like?
1: Well, that's where we are now. And it's so many things that have created that. And it's so funny that what's happening in sport really informs the work that I do when it comes to social justice, uh, racial justice, and even looking at things like race and and COVID and how COVID uh, is really uh, changing. COVID-19 is changing the ways in which we engage and we interact and how AI is now uh, really uh, creating a, a new type of context for yeah. what sport is going to look like and what fans are going to look like moving forward.
0: Yeah, it's also been really interesting to see the intersection between sport and social justice playing out over the last few months, right, with the the sort of um, conscience coming from, I, I think the women's NBA league seems like then women's soccer has been doing a really great job of Sort of leading the path and then nba following and and uh, other other leagues stepping up and saying well we're going to either strike or we're bringing the protest to the court or the field that's really encouraging it seems like to me how do you feel about that
1: well well it is and i think uh for a very long time i think we've celebrated men of color in sport on the court and on the field and i think what they're saying now on the street we need that kind of respect as well so i think it is really powerful, and I think it's something that we've got to celebrate and something that we've got to support.
0: Yeah, wonderful thought. In fact, it's a really great transition. It seems like to to the topic of AI and technology because I've seen where you have said the the line the the phrase criminology must be the conscience of AI. And I found that profound. I I think, you know, certainly for me, it seems like discussions of algorithmic bias are always sort of bouncing around near the areas of law enforcement and criminal justice. And that's an overlap area in those conversations. But it's rarer in my experience to like plant the conversation there and from the beginning and say, let's design from here outwards. And yet once you establish that orientation, it makes perfect sense. So how did you arrive at that insight in your career?
1: Well, I think I I entered uh, AI from the perspective of what was happening in the courts and how risk assessment tools were being used to uh, give a score as to whether or not someone was going to reoffend and uh, attaching risk assessment uh, tools to recidivism rates. And I felt that to be uh, something that was a bit too shaky. Mm -hmm. And what we saw with with criminal justice is that many of the high impact decisions happen there when it comes to life or liberty when it comes to life or death and if you're planning to use an ai or an algorithmic decision making tool in the criminal justice system you cannot be using a tool that is so opaque or a tool that's providing pre- predictions that are overestimating recidivism and i felt that what i was seeing was not uh, really a conscience when it came to the use of artificial intelligence in the criminal justice system, because too many of the tools that were being designed were being designed from a place of biased data, a place uh, where data was discriminating. And what I realized I was seeing is what I called uh, guilty conscience AI because now we're seeing the pullback, we're seeing the moratorium on predictive uh, policing, on facial recognition uh, technologies, and many of the technologies that are being designed to uh, lead what they call intelligence-led policing or or big data policing. So I said that what we really need are not only data scientists designing tools for criminal justice, but criminologists and criminalists and criminal psychologists and, and other individuals involved in the criminal justice system working alongside those data scientists so it was really a call for a multi-disciplinary uh, approach to how we do AI in criminal justice and the fact that what we don't want to continue making in the criminal justice system would be the mistakes that we've made in the past. So why use new data? why use new technology sorry to amplify old historic biases that have kept us trapped?
0: Yeah, what a brilliant observation that is. Because it seems to me that it may be possible to think of other applications of AI and algorithmic decision making that stand to affect people, more people in a broader range of ways. But it would be hard to think of an application that has a greater chance of doing more harm to an individual's rights, liberty and quality of life than how law enforcement and criminal justice uses AI and other technologies, right? Is that a Definitely. fair?
1: When, when you look at it, when someone is arrested, or when someone is incarcerated and someone has a sentence to serve, think of how the families are impacted. Think about what happens to a child when a parent is incarcerated. What happens to the trajectory of that child's life? And then you start to see the social cost of crime. So it's just not that one individual who is incarcerated, but it's families and generations that are impacted by that. So this is why I speak a lot about intergenerational trauma in data and the fact that we've got to look at the data and understand the history of the data, the psychology, the sociology behind it. It's just not numbers. It's lives we're playing with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so when I think about the tech, the taxonomy of sorts of, of AI or algorithmic systems and how uh, they intersect with, with criminal justice. Um, I, I, I sort of imagine a few broad categories. Like I think about law enforcement, I think about courts, and then I think about detention or supervision uh, of sort of parole and that sort of thing. And so first of all, my question to you is, is that a fair taxonomy in terms of the breakdown of, of how, you know, AI and other technologies intersect with, with law enforcement and criminal justice.
1: Yeah, definitely. So it's going to be the police, it's going to be the courts, and it's going to be corrections. That's the triad in criminal justice. Okay. You're going to find that those are definitely the big categories where AI would be applied.
0: Okay. And then within within that, uh, do you find that you have equal focus across each of those areas, or is it more focus? Is your focus more, let's say, on law enforcement because it's sort of you know top of the funnel and the most urgent problem of policing and, and racial disparities?
1: Well, I think what we're seeing right now would be policing and the courts, because those are the two that are up front. We're not seeing much what's happening in corrections because most of us don't exist behind the prison walls. But definitely there are things that are happening there. And what's happening now, and it's something that I keep speaking about, is we're creating digital prisons. We're using AI to create digital prisons. So you don't have to be behind the prison walls to be serving a sentence with this technology. So that's how we're using it when it comes to algorithmic policing and when it comes to the algorithmic decision making systems in the judicial system or when it comes to e incarceration or what's happening there. We are creating those digital prisons outside. We are using the technology to create what I call the digital chokehold. And this is why I've been speaking so much and how we fuse AI and criminal justice. But something that we don't think about when it comes to these risk assessment tools, they're already being used in a juvenile setting. So how is that going to change the trajectory of a child's life? It's being used in a child protection case. So are we going to use an algorithm to separate a parent and a child? So we're not seeing those other cases, but those are indeed as traumatic and will have extraordinary impact on the life outcomes of children and families and generations.
0: Yeah, indeed, that really sounds like it, it's a very serious and urgent consideration. What are the problems at, at each of the other levels? So in court systems, bias and prediction models and things like that, how, how is AI entering into that, that process or that part of the well, triad? What it's
1: doing is, is, is probably frustrating due process, particularly in the judicial system, and it's overestimating risk for black and brown people. So that is really a challenge given uh, the system itself. In corrections, what we're seeing is that people are now challenging algorithms to gain parole, to gain their freedom, and and, and, and that really is unfortunate. And you've had a few cases where uh, persons who were formerly incarcerated, returning citizens, had to challenge these vendors uh, to, to get their freedom, to get the uh, parole board to say, uh, you know, we're going to sign uh, that release. So it, those are really critical things that we're not thinking about when it comes to AI, whether or not this technology is accountable whether or not it is transparent, whether or not it is explainable. Do we have rights to peep into the black box? If someone is incarcerated and an algorithm keeps saying that you're a risk when you've done 15 years of good behavior, when you are ready to to reconnect, uh, with your family and to build back your life. And now you have to face an algorithm that is unfair. And indeed, that's why I say that criminal justice must be the conscience of AI, because those are some big decisions. And we can't leave those life and liberty decisions to an algorithm.
0: Yeah, or even it seems like or even to a set of you know, software developers and designers who are Uh, bringing their own biases into the design of those systems, right? So that is one of the ideas that seems like it needs to be exposed is that the data models of course, and the biases that go into the data models themselves must be uncovered even before we can talk about the bias in the designs of algorithms in terms of logic and flow and, you know, rules and so on. So that is part of the discussion that happens, I know, within AI in a larger sense. How often is that part of the work that you're doing within these different pieces of the, the triad uh, in criminology?
1: Well, it's, it's, it's the work that I'm doing now, and this is where my life is situated, really looking at data, really trying to understand what are we doing with this data and understanding that if people of color had trust issues with the criminal justice system before AI, how can we trust the data that we're using now? So one of the things that I like to ask, you know, when I look at bias and discrimination and systemic racism in the data and how it's baked into the data and how we keep using this data to design tools for the criminal justice system. So if you're using data that's been gathered from communities that have been over-policed, of course the data is not going to be uh, as accurate as you want that data to be. But I always ask, you know, when you look at the history in the country of enslavement When you think about things like the Slave Codes and the Fugitive uh, Slave Act, or you think of the 13th Amendment or the the One Drop Rule or the Three-Fifths Compromise and Jim Crow and and segregation, how do you remove that from the data? How do you take that history of systemic racism out of that data? And if that history is baked into your data sets, what are you going to produce with that?
0: Yeah, that was actually a question I had for you, because I noticed that there was this article that surfaced last week in The Root about uh, a judge asking Harvard to find out why so many black people were in prison, and they could only find one answer, systemic racism. So while that's not a tremendous surprise, I think, to anyone who's been paying attention, it's a striking thing to have on record. And I wonder when that kind of data exists in the larger system around us, are there AI approaches and solutions that could help potentially overcome that? Or is it just a matter of, of governance and oversight, you know, in the development of AI systems to make sure that that's not furthering and deepening those those issues?
1: Well, I think there are many uh, companies right now, particularly at this moment, where systemic racism seems to be on the front burner, uh, you know, in every conversation. There are many uh, designers who are presenting tools that are are looking for risks, you know, detecting and and monitoring and managing risks, and uh, they have bias and discrimination in there and, and racism, but it's bigger than that. You've got to go back to the subconscious. You've got to go back to the design consciousness. You've got to go back to the millions of dollars companies have spent in implicit bias training that really have not bore any type of fruits. So you've got to think about that. So it's going to take a combination of thinking. It's going to take a new type of consciousness that we've got to develop. It's going to take uh, a lot of due diligence at the design table. It's going to take vigilance. Because you've got to be constantly aware. And we all have biases. We all have prejudices. So we've got to be constantly aware of these things. But it also calls for diversity and equity and inclusion as a risk management strategy. It's not going to be perfect.
0: Yeah, but there's no way. I was just going to say there's no way for people perfect. to to understand the diversity of experiences unless there's a diverse group of people at the table participating in, and building systems, right? I mean, that makes sense to me. (laughs) But
1: diversity in itself just doesn't uh, create an AI system that's perfect.
0: But at least we will know
1: that certain checks and balances have been applied. At least we know that what we are producing, a certain or requisite level of due diligence has been applied. But I think uh, from being in this area right now where it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion in a digital space, I I keep asking myself, you know, what is it about diversity that intimidates? What is it about inclusion that breeds fear? What is it about equity that makes us so territorial and, and tribal? Because we are many years along, but we still seem to need a different kind of formula, a different kind of engagement to get these things right.
0: So you had a story, I heard on one uh, interview, one discussion, you talked about a study that had been done at Stanford... Uh, can you, I, I, you seem like you know the study I'm talking about. Can you give us the, the lay of the land on that? Well,
1: it was just a basic study that looked at implicit bias. And I think what the scholars were trying to do, and this is what they do now in law enforcement as well, uh, when they do this shoot, don't shoot uh, sort of simulation, uh, trying to introduce positive images of black men to see the kind of response that you're going to get. So maybe if you were to put the face of, of you know, non-threatening uh, black men, maybe, uh Will Smith? I don't know. Right? <laughs> so they were putting friendlier faces, trying to see what the impact would be. Mm-hmm. And they realized that when they introduced these uh, friendly faces, handsome faces, uh, good looking, you know, young, agile men, young black men, the uh, perspective changed. But how long did it last? Mm-hmm. And that is what they were saying. It lasted for a week, for two weeks, or so three weeks, and then we fall back into our behavior because that's how the, the psyche work. And, and, and that's how uh, we work. Think about it like a diet. You know, sometimes you start a diet and it's working and then we, we see a piece of chocolate cake or whatever it is that we like and we slip right back into old behavior. So this is why I'm saying it calls for a different kind of consciousness. It calls for an eternal kind of vigilance. It calls for that kind of due diligence. It calls for at the design table, you know, intellectual curiosity and intellectual confrontation uh, to ensure that those things are part of the risk management strategy. So it's it's just not only designing a risk culture or encouraging a risk culture in a, a tech organization, but it's about drilling down deeper into that. And understanding that we've got to ask the tough questions, understanding that the answers are going to make us very uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but it is in the uncomfortable answers, in that kind of conflict, that we can really build the systems that we need.
0: Yeah, I feel very called out about the chocolate cake, though, I, <laughs> especially during COVID times, right? <laughs> hey, so our friends at All Tech as Human have uh, piped in on YouTube and asked, is there a visual way we can better understand the concerns around the power of an algorithm to shape our society? And then they elaborated and said, for example, every news story runs with a pic like Terminator or Pepper or Sophia or Handshake with a robot, what's the best way to represent what we're talking about here? Is there a metaphor? Is there a visual that that you use or can think of? Well, actually,
1: I usually speak about that. You know, that that, uh, robot stepping out of the sky or the two hands uh, they're going to touch. I think we've got to think about how do we rebrand that? Because so many people are using the technology right now, but they don't know that they are using it. So most people are still waiting for AI to come. AI is here. It is super powerful, super pervasive. And I think people have got to understand that this is something that can have an extraordinary impact on society. I am very passionate about the technology, but passionate about the ethical use of the technology, the responsible use of the technology. AI we can trust. So I think we've got to build images that look as though trust is at the center, that Mm. look as though they can build public confidence. Because I think uh, to ensure AI maturity, we have got to ensure diversity, equity, and inclusion is part of that. Or else we're gonna have a technology that is very immature. So I think things that build confidence, things that build trust, and, and really things that show that each of us have the opportunity to use this technology to do things that are better.
0: I love that because it's actually one of the recurring questions that I ask uh, guests from time to time. Is you know what what makes you most optimistic about when you, when you think about tech and the future of human ex- uh, of experiences? Are there applications of tech that you get really excited about and that maybe even fill you with hope and the good that you that they can do? And I want to hear your answer, but I also wanted to note that it sounds like you you have already given at least an indication of. You know, the idea that AI can help us lead, lead better lives, right? What is it that, that makes you hopeful about that?
1: Well, I am. It's, it's, an, it's a very powerful uh, suite of, of, of technologies when you think of artificial intelligence. What it can do when it comes to communication and connectivity and connecting people who are apart. part. I mean, that's brilliant. What it could do in healthcare. It's absolutely amazing the kind of change that AI can make in healthcare. Just about every industry AI can have an extraordinary impact that could really uh, create a world post-COVID that, uh, you know, can be much better than the world that we were in, you know, before. So I'm, I'm very passionate about it. I'm very passionate, but I'm also passionate about doing it right, not creating any harm with the technology. Inclusive innovation, ethical technology, those are the things that I'm passionate about. About AI justice. And and my uh, passion is about using AI to create justice at scale, using AI in positive ways in the criminal justice system. You know, I think what we're doing now with with it, just trying to catch criminals, you know, that, you know, it's it's just the basic. Let's take it to the
0: next level. So unimaginative. (laughs) Yeah, no, that and that's beautiful. I mean, I, you, you really touched me when you said justice at scale, because that really feels like it's an important way to think about, you know, what's possible. To me, a lot of my work I, I talk about as human experience at scale or meaningful human experience at scale. So justice at scale makes complete sense to me. And I, I think, you know, I would love to, to push you a little further on that. Like, what does justice at scale look like in, in applications. Like what what would we see if we saw AI and emerging technologies helping shape a world around us that had justice at scale?
1: I think what we will see is this technology and technologists working with data-driven technologies understanding that in at every data point or every data set has a certain amount of tragedy and trauma attached to it. Yeah. And we've got to think about that. And that's something I learned working in homicide. You know, you would see the statistics, you know, the homicide rate. But then to every individual, there was a partner, a family, a generation attached to that. And much of the work that I did with therapeutic jurisprudence, which is pretty much using the law in a a therapeutic way, looked at the impact of children, how a child's life changes, if a parent or a caregiver is murdered and there is no justice, or if justice is delayed. Or, you know, we we don't think about how it impacts generations. And intergenerational trauma in data is something that I am very, very passionate
0: about. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, we hear about intergenerational trauma, but I hadn't thought of intergenerational trauma in data. How do you see that modeled in data?
1: Well, this is what I'm working on now, and this is what I'm thinking about, and this is where where I am when it comes to understanding that. And this is how criminology and criminal psychology and therapeutic jurisprudence and the work that I've done uh, when it comes to being a substance abuse therapist working in rehabilitation, this is how it, it fuses with AI, uh, to really think of new ways of ensuring that justice is served in real time, ensuring that children don't become uh, collateral damage, and understanding Understanding that we, we really have got to use this technology in the criminal justice system in more positive ways looking for positive outcomes as opposed to what we're seeing right now
0: that's I I love the imagination you use with that but it's fused with empathy right and that makes it make, brings it all right back around to that whole AI uh, you know that criminology is the conscience of AI, or should be. Uh,
1: so that's a. That's and everything a- that I do comes from a place of compassion and empathy. Mm-hmm. And I think we we've got to think about also fusing that with technology.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. So I think too about, you know, you talked about earlier about um, about surveillance and and other deployments of of what really are AI in some level. You're the CEO of Urban AI. Right, uh, so clearly a lot of predictive policing is deployed through the mesh of city infrastructure, and increasingly the the promise of smart cities, quote unquote. So how do we go about ensuring that we can reap the benefits of AI and emerging tech in cities, which you know I think uh, uh, anyone can agree that there's there's some benefit that can happen from that, the smart monitoring of resource availability and utilities and sanitation and so on, without further enabling surveillance and broken windows policing and disproportionate policing of marginalized communities. What, what's the work that we need to do there?
1: Well, you know, COVID-19 has sort of toppled that smart cities model, uh, (laughs) and it's not a a model. It's a model that's trying to rebrand right at this moment, because so much of cities is going to have to be contactless. And what you're seeing is an escape out of the cities as opposed to what we had had prior. So cities may be a pretty empty place uh, as we move forward. So, But when it comes to smart cities and when it comes to that whole concept of urban AI, urban AI is really about bringing AI into an urban space. So there are two things. There's a part that really looks at how do we use uh, AI to ensure that resources in cities are equitable, that the individuals who are living in the cities are just not only are there existing, but they have a stake in what this city looks like and what this city feels like. And the only thing that we're going to do in the cities would be surveillance. No. Uh, the, the, the only application so far when it came to Crime and criminal justice and, and criminality in the smart city space with surveillance technology. Mm-hmm. And, and it's much more than that. But it's also about understanding the demographics of the cities mm-hmm. and understanding who lives in the cities and understanding that we've got to empower all people, all demographics. We've got to look because in our cities is where we find our disenfranchised off, you know, underserved, under resourced disinvested, marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. So what the smart city model was doing was building a city within a city because it did not include those marginalized communities in their plans. And if you don't invite people to the party,
0: what happened? It's not a very good party. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. That, and that's and a it's a really important observation. You and I are both in New York City, right? Yeah, so we're both here in a big city uh, that is, as you say, a little emptied out uh, in the wake of COVID uh, or during COVID. I, I don't like it when people are talking about COVID in the past tense. It's like, we're, it's still going on, people. No, it's still here, we're really <laughs> present. Yeah. Right, right. Um, but but I love the idea of, of thinking about the, the more creative, imaginative ways that we can use AI and, and bring that equity to different communities one of the things that it seems like that calls to mind is there's, you know, the, of course, the big uh, mo- movement right now for defunding and even maybe abolishing police in different communities and then the, the reinvestment into community policing or community, you know, management. Community okay, led policing. Okay, perfect. Community led policing. Yeah. Community led oh, policing. So I think- and and, and what, I was going to say another community resources, now. right? Right. Definitely. So I think what we need to
1: see and what I'm hoping to do with some of the uh, the uh, projects that I'm working on right now is empowering. I think what AI also needs is, is, is more diverse stakeholder engagement. Mm-hmm. So, so far, we've been designing technologies that are re victimize re communities. When you're thinking about the deployment of surveillance technologies into a disinvested community, uh, what we do need is to educate people in communities on these technologies that are being used against them. Uh, they need to understand the kind of digital force that's now being applied against them. And one of the things that I have been seeing when it comes to algorithmic policing would be uh, the digital subpoenas. Uh, They are doing things like, uh, you know, geofacing warrants and geolocation warrants. and, And we're creating what I call, you know, the digital handcuffs and the digital chokehold. We're doing all of these things with algorithm, but all of it, is focused on marginalized communities, Mm -hmm. disinvested communities, communities that are already culturally alienated, communities that need resources. So what we need to use this technology to do is to really empower communities. Because what we've been doing uh, in these early stages of AI would be disempowering communities. Mm -hmm. And what we really need to do is democratize this technology so people in, in communities understand how their data could be weaponized against them. People need to understand the power of their data. This is why data advocacy is so important, because data is a part of your civil rights. It's a part of your human rights. And most people are just not there yet uh, when it comes to understanding, as we would say, the social dilemma of data. So people have got to think about that. But definitely more community led uh, policing, which means communities need to decide what type of resources are required in the communities. Because, I mean, I've been in in policing for a very long time. It really doesn't make sense when a community is disenfranchised, when a family is already traumatized, where you have intergenerational trauma and free floating anger to apply law enforcement to that. That is not the solution that you're looking for. So definitely community led uh, policing. Uh, strategies, as well as greater stakeholder engagement between communities and law enforcement in designing the kinds of strategies that are required.
0: Yeah, that's a really super important area, and I, I it seems like such a wonderful time for it right now that that intersection is happening between the growth and uh, the discourse around AI and this movement around uh, reforming police and and thinking more creatively about community solutions uh, and and reinvesting in those communities.
1: Definitely, because it's about racial justice and it's about social justice. Mm -hmm. And it's really about policing rethinking itself. And every uh, change in policing has been attached to a social movement. So uh, when we think about uh, the war, when we think about Vietnam and how police had to change their strategies, uh, when we think about uh, the gay rights uh, liberation movement and that and Stonewall and how that impacted uh, law enforcement mm-hmm. and when you think about uh, the civil rights and, and 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 the movement pre-civil rights and how that impacted law enforcement, this is impacting law enforcement as well. so law enforcement also has to rebrand yeah. has to rethink, reposition and understand that you know you've got to you have got to, treat communities with dignity and respect. And I think we've got to bring that back into the question.
0: I love that. That's so important. When you think about regulations and protections that those that are in place now, those that you think are most vital to get into place, which ones come to mind as as the most important to protect Uh, the most vulnerable and marginalized from wrongful prosecution, uh, whether it be through faulty facial recognition or flawed algorithmic models that disproportionately identify black and brown suspects or anything like that. What what do we need still?
1: I think what we need at this stage is to do an audit and all the technologies that are out there when it comes to surveillance, uh, law enforcement, uh, how technologies are being used, because I don't think we have done that audit just yet. I think there needs to be an education. So people have got to be educated about their digital rights, as you're educated about your civil rights and your human rights. You've got to be ed- educated about how AI informs or uh, your rights. I think there are frameworks out there that we have been using, but they've been very broad. So we have the uh, GD, uh, you know, the general uh, data protection, we have that, we have the California consumer privacy, we have the Illinois, we have there several, you know, there's the algorithmic accountability. So there are all of these things that are out there. And there's so many, every day it's a new framework. <laughs> every day it's a new ethical framework that's being applied. But one of the things that I keep realizing from some of these frameworks is that uh, they lack, uh, they mention diversity, equity, and inclusion but they all come from a very uh, Western and Eurocentric perspective. So when you look at the committees and you look at the groups and you look at the designers, uh, there's a total lack of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but they've become great slogans. You know, everybody's talking about it, but how do we operationalize this in real time? How do we make make this change meaningful and sustainable? And, And how do we do things that speak to a particular kind of truth. And I think we we're just not there yet. So uh, when it comes to what's out there, we have got to understand that many of the technologies, because so many of these technologies are being designed, not in clandestine, but being designed uh, not in the open. You know, there's a lack of, uh, many of them are not, are done through public procurement or many of them are being funded by private agencies, right. uh, private companies, our brands. So we really don't know what law enforcement, or what the justice system or what the companies who are designing for them are coming up with. So this is why it's so critical for individuals to be educated on their digital rights and to, to build that kind of public understanding. It's only going to make the technology better.
0: Yeah, I agree. That that makes total sense, and it it's long overdue. And I love your point that so many of you know GDPR and California and all of the other things. There there is, you see, it is this kind of glancing blow at diversity. Like, (laughs) oh, let's. Include diversity in there, but it's not. And everybody's talking about it now. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's talking about it. It's not oriented from there. It's not saying, hey, let's make sure that this is a truly inclusive framework and start from there and then build out, then design out from there. Definitely. Yeah. So that that's beautiful. I, you know, a lot of your work seems to have to do, and even your, your background includes uh, psychology and, and so on. So it, it seems to have to do with understanding Sociology and neuroscience and and so on. Uh, so, with so much focus at the in the moment within companies and organizations on trying to improve diversity and inclusion and reduce biases, and you also made a, a reference a little while ago about how um, you know some of that bias training has been ineffective. What do you find about whether we can unlearn bias and privilege and even racism, and 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 what do we need to do to do that? What what's the emphasis that we need to to put forward in in society, for that?
1: So it, it's not easy. No. It's certainly not going to be easy. It's like unlearning violence, and that's where I work, you know, really trying to uh, bring people back, people who are using violence, children who are using violence. Um, but it comes to exposure. And one of the things we say when it comes to violence is the greatest predictor of someone going to use violence in their adult life, is early exposure to violence. Mm. So think about it when it comes to things like systemic racism. Mm. And it really goes back into the individual, the family, the mind. And I think what we've got to do, again, uh, particularly when it comes to understanding that a half-day course in implicit bias or subconscious bias is not going to do it. It's not going to do it or just saying that I'm not racist, or saying that I'm anti-racist, or just saying things. We've got to start to see action, because now there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk in all these companies. Everybody wants to invest now in black excellence, and that's a great thing. Because there's a lot of black excellence to invest in. But what we really need to see are the systems changing. We really need to see the organizations changing. We really need to see the country thinking in a different way as well. It's hard work, but I think we all can do it. I'm very optimistic. Good. I'm very optimistic. I think what we need is a little more imagination. We've got to look at the imagination of the individuals who are designing and how implicit bias informs the subconscious imagination. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think there are ways in which we can really uh, deconstruct and and rebuild. But I think, as I say, we've got to be bold enough to have those uncomfortable conversations. And we've got to be brave enough to create room at the table and invite people who don't look like us to sit Discuss, build together.
0: Make it a better party, as you say, (laughs) right? (laughs) I'm all for a better party. (laughs) What seems like one of the complementary issues there is that of representation, right? Uh, So people too often seeing people who look like them imprisoned or arrested or depicted as being imprisoned or arrested. uh, And it seems like that must do a number on people's psyches and identities, I would imagine. Well,
1: it's it's more than that. You know, you know, everything is attached to history. And when you look at uh, some of the ads, the advertisements uh, from the time just after uh, enslavement, emancipation, and the fugitive uh, slave slave act, and the kinds of ads that were created when an an, uh, an African uh, American individual uh, ran away from the plantation or decided, and you looked at the kinds of ads that were were put out there, there are certain images that were created, certain stereotypes of individuals that were created. So I think there's a stereotype sometimes in people's minds that when we see black or brown, we see criminal. And and it really, a lot of people for them, that changes, particularly if you have diverse experiences, particularly if you've traveled to other countries. I mean, I am originally from Trinidad and Tobago. So I come from a country that is very diverse, a country that's very cosmopolitan. In my own family, I'm a mixture of of Afro-Trinidadian and Asian Trinidadian. So I have a history of my family uh having lives before in india as well as in africa so i come from a very diverse perspective which makes me understand uh the beauty and i see beauty in all things so i think we really need to embrace a more multicultural uh perspective and i I always believe in honesty and sometimes honesty hurts Mm -hmm. but you have to go through that process you've got to go through that process and this is why i'm saying empathy compassion in AI. This is why I'm saying we've got to reimagine AI ethics. Some of it looks really good on paper, it sounds really exciting on paper, but what you're seeing at the companies, what you're seeing on the advisory boards, what you're seeing is not diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we, we've really, you know. Let's start with a place of honesty, and I think we can build from there.
0: Yeah, that's fair enough. It also seems like you know there's a, a wide range of places where representation can be improved, right? Like uh, VR, we talked about this in a recent episode. Uh, gaming, I think I I heard you talk about uh, games and and the representation mm-hmm. of you know the difference between the developers versus the consumers and players of those games. You had a great quote, something about why can't a black man ri- or black boy ride a dragon? I think that was a. Well, I've
1: read that. That was. So- something that I actually read in a in a magazine. I had quoted that and, and it really was, you know, what about a black superhero? And you know let's I mean we, we saw, you know, a black superhero in the Black Panther, you know, you yep. know, bless bless his soul rest in peace, uh, Chadwick. But you know, what about? When are we gonna get some more of those? And and really it's about the imagination. And this is what I keep saying. What informs the imagination? Does implicit bias inform the imagination? So if we're imagining, if we're using this great technology to design uh, something that is new, why do we keep replicating old stories, biased traditions, old ways of thinking and operating that we are using new technology to create?
0: Yeah, and it seems like especially, you know, we we have evidence now. I mean, Black Panther was such a highly grossing film and uh the Spider-Verse movie did really really well and there's been yes. so many great examples of, you know, if you if you build it they will come, right? Like we need to actually just acknowledge that there's a mm-hmm. a market dying for it and and plenty of of multicultural consumers will be out there. Uh, So hopefully, fingers crossed. You know, you talked earlier about um, so much of the emphasis with AI and criminology being on uh, policing and communities and street crime. But I I also uh, noticed that when we think about that intersection of, of AI and crime, there's also the angle of maybe new crimes that can be committed through the in- interventions of technology, right? So identity fraud, cybersecurity, financial schemes, and so on. So I actually heard you use the expression crimes of the suites in contrast to crimes of the streets, which is <laughs> brilliant. I love a little wordplay. Uh, do you spend much of your time in that space the, examining, you know, whatever types of new crimes AI could help facilitate and and, and helping build that uh, sort of infrastructure to to deal with that? Well, actually,
1: I've not been doing a lot of that right now, but it's something that I've done in the past. Mm. So I do look at new crimes. It's something that I'm just doing on my own, looking at at new crimes. But also, uh, I did a lot of work on investigating white-collar crime and the uh, psychology of white-collar crime and profiling white-collar criminals. And and this is why I'm saying that so many of the tools that are being designed are all focused on the street, Mm -hmm. you know, the low-hanging fruit. Uh, let's use the technology to, to really look at other spaces uh, where crimes are happened. And of course, you know, there's much work happening in cybersecurity and looking for uh, those bad actors. But there are other things that we can do uh, when it comes to using the technology and, and just not investing in, re-pol- you know, in, in over-policing communities that have been so traumatized by law enforcement in the past.
0: There's so much more money to be made from prosecuting those big big crimes anyway. But
1: you wouldn't think that, right? When right. everyone is just on the streets. Yeah, of the street
0: court. it really does. It's like one note. It doesn't play. <laughs> right now, it seems like also there's a, with the release of the social dilemma, as you alluded to earlier, a lot of people are chattering about tech addiction. And how we need to break our harmful relationships with social media, but I've also heard a a number of compelling arguments from underrepresented communities about how important social media has been in offering access and reach and amplification to, you know, voices who might not have otherwise had a platform. So do you have strong feelings about the healthiest framing here of the balance between those, those sort of pools and that dichotomy?
1: Well, it's about balance. It's definitely about balance. But I think what we saw in particular when it came to the social dilemma would be a a different kind of a form of enslavement, digital enslavement. Mm. That's what that was presenting. But we also saw undue influence Mm. and manipulation and exploitation and grooming of of children. Mm. And, And that's a particular kind of abuse. So when you're looking at designing these ethical frameworks, you've got to really look at the impact of technology, that level of undue influence that technology has. But of course, it's very, I mean, social media is very powerful. Mm. uh, And it's done extremely uh, positive things. So in everything, it's about balance. It's about bringing the requisite kind of balance. And this is why I'm saying that um, it's about data serenity it's 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 about that and it's about data ownership as well and as much as we have conversations about civil rights and about human rights we've got to start to have conversations about digital rights data is a new language that we are using uh, most of us uh, you know, speak whatever the language of our, our mother tongue, we speak that, but we're also speaking another language. Mm-hmm. And we've got to look at data and algorithms as a new language, and we've got to create the requisite uh, kind of literacy programs to empower people so they can understand what's going on with their data.
0: Yeah, it's like in that metaphor, I guess, What you know, the language is being spoken all around us. And some of us have the privilege of understanding that language, but many, many people who are subject to the whims of that language do not speak that language, do not understand that language, and haven't had it explained to them. So that seems like a really important, It's a, I think what, what All Tech is Human was asking for earlier with a, a sort of a visual, there's a, there's a metaphor that seems like it's a really useful one. Definitely. Um, yeah, so I also noticed a line in one of your bios that described what you do as using AI to save lives, which is a beautiful turn of phrase. Um, I wondered about the model that you conceive of or the framework in your mind as you think about that. I often refer to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals as a model for what I think AI can align with in trying to create a better world. Do you use any different framework or taxonomy of the ways in which AI can be used to save lives?
1: Well, I use the the taxonomy of the streets as a criminologist when it comes to saving lives. And saving lives is not just only about life and death. There are some lives that are existing right now that need to be saved, lives that have been impacted by the criminal justice system, lives that have been impacted by, by homicide and by violence and by trauma and intergenerational trauma. There are lots of people walking around with a lot of pain. And those lives are lives that feel as though they've been lost. So, yes, I think about AI within the concept of doing no harm, mm-hmm. thinking about things like autonomous vehicles and autonomous uh, weaponry and, and how these things could impact and cause death. That's real. That's real. And But I also think about trauma and, and saving lives from trauma and not re-traumatizing communities and, and continuing to re-victimize communities with data. Mm-hmm. And this is where I come back to me uh, finding ways to now look at Intergenerational trauma in data, and how do we remove that trauma? How do we create a, a risk assessment tool that looks at that? And, and that's why it's so important. So definitely using AI to save lives, and really using AI to build better futures.
0: Yeah, that gives me chills on the back of my head. That's such an it's such an imaginative uh, sort of combination of the idea of that intergenerational trauma and the idea of data and technology, and trying to find you know what is. A pattern that can be understood, and how can we how can we manage this and, and pull this out? And, uh, that's, it's brilliant. I'm so I'm so impressed with Thank you. you. So that's <laughs> where I'm doing
1: my work right now, and that's where my mind is right now.
0: One other question I have for you is: when you think about what we could do in culture to stand a better chance of bringing about the best futures? with technology rather than the worst futures. you know, Everybody seems to love this kind of framing of dystopia versus utopia. And I think we're in alignment on the idea that it's it's not either or, it's kind of always both and you, <laughs> you have to do the work to steer it toward the best outcome. So what, what do you think we can do in culture to, to bring about those better futures?
1: I think we've got to understand, uh, of course, uh, representation mm-hmm. uh, is critical. We've got to amplify our voices all voices need to to be heard. I believe always in in collective uh, responsibility and individual responsibility, but also it, it, it really calls for greater stakeholder engagement. And that's something that I've not been seeing with AI. I keep saying that AI speaks to AI, data scientists speak to data scientists. And that's what we've been seeing. So we definitely need a more multidisciplinary approach. We need more criminologists, more social workers, more educators, more psychologists. And we need to bring different types, artists, different types, musicians, are uh, you know into the conversation because this is a technology, as I said to you, I'm so passionate about it. Mm-hmm. It's power, its potential, its pervasiveness, and, and its promise. It's extraordinary promise. But we've got to ensure that promise is for all. And we've got to look at the inherent uh, privilege and power in this technology. And we've got to try to find more ways to do more stakeholder diverse stakeholder engagement in AI. And we've got to bring more diverse voices in the technology. And I think because of the lack of diversity and inclusion I think you know the imagination of of AI is being cheated.
0: Yeah, I, I like the way you put that because it does feel like to me some of the things that we've talked about here today and that I've heard you speak about since I've been following your work are far more imaginative and creative than I hear in any other from any other expert or in any other any other circle. And I think it does probably stem from you know this re- reorientation, you saying, criminology has to be the conscience of AI. And what I feel like you mean, and this may be uh, not correct, but uh, when I'm, I'm going to tell you what I hear, is the idea that we need to really understand the humanity of those in the criminal justice system. Is that a fair way to
1: characterize that? We, we, we've got to. We've got to. And how do they enter the criminal justice system? How do they enter? And why is it that a particular group enters faster than any other group and spends more time in there. Why is that? What is wrong with the system? What is wrong with society? And I think we don't understand the impact of trauma, but we experience it. We don't understand how it impacts a generation, how it impacts a generation, and how many people in a family become victims of that experience and I think one of the things that we're seeing Mm -hmm. yes when it comes Mm -hmm. to AI is that you know we we think that somehow uh, criminal justice and persons who are incarcerated and persons with a propensity or proclivity to to do crime or people Mm -hmm. who've done crime before or people who have a criminal record or people who are known to the police somehow it makes them open season and it doesn't Mm -hmm. it doesn't make them open season to create technologies to further traumatize or victimize or those communities. It doesn't. And I think we've got to think about that. We've got to think about that. And when we look at the criminal justice data, it's data that I've worked with for many years. How do you enter a gang database? How do you get into that? You could be in the community. You could be on the street. You could be at the street corner where there is arrest done. Uh, police, you know, there's sometimes there could be victimization included in that data, mistaken identity. Mm-hmm. How does a 10-year-old or 11-year-old end up in a gang database So the FBI database? I mean, we've got to think about how we've been collecting criminal justice data. And if we're using that to design technology, what are we going to get?
0: Yeah. What I wanted to also point out or include here is a link to our, our peers, our colleagues over at All Tech is Human have published this responsible tech guide in which you are featured and I am, but you are, you're profiled in this, uh, in this guide. And I think there's going to be some value for, uh, for our listeners, for our audience here to, to look into this and understand a, a wider array of, you know, the kinds it's brilliant, of
1: things. It's, it's a brilliant document. I call it a jewel. I think David has given us a gift And I really appreciate the work that he's been doing and his great team at All Tech is Human. And we've got to think about responsibility, individual, collective responsibility. What is responsible tech? And you've got to think about accountability and transparency and explainability and auditability and all of these great things. And you've got to always remember due process. Due process is so critical when it comes to data and AI and duty of care when it comes the data and AI, and, and this is where I come from. That that space of understanding that the people have rights. Yeah, that, that people deserve justice.
0: It feels like too when you're talking about that that the the one thing that uh, I think it was even mentioned in the in the movie 13 uh, that that um, prisoners' rights are sort of the last frontier of human rights you know there's so many as you said people seem to write off people who have been incarcerated or who have been through the criminal justice system and it seems it's so critically important that we move our minds into that space to be able to accept the full humanity of every human every person in the criminal justice system and beyond
1: so. And and it's if we're talking about rehabilitation and if we're talking of restorative justice and and reentry and, and these individuals are returning citizens and what do they get when they return? I mean we we've got to come from a place of compassion and my criminology comes from a place of compassion because I have seen pain. I have seen pain in the criminal justice system and when you work with children in the criminal justice system, it really brings you to a place of of, of asking certain questions. And and when I see something like an algorithmic decision-making system being used when it comes to juvenile justice and being applied to to who's deemed a juvenile delinquent and who gets the chance and who has to go through the criminal justice system, uh, you don't want to put someone through the criminal justice system. What you want to do is reduce contact with the criminal justice system. And those are the things we need to be thinking about using AI to do, not to over surveil communities and to, to use facial recognition to misidentify and mistakenly identify and, and, and use technologies to, to trap and, and to incarcerate. Um, yes, those things are there as part of the legal hmm. system, but let's use our imagination.
0: Yeah. Let's
1: use our imagination.
0: I love that. It's, it's a very boring interpretation of, of it if you just do it that way. I love your interpretation. I think that's beautiful. I have on the screen uh, the link to responsibletechguide.com. And since this will be an audio podcast that will be helpful for people, please go and check that out. Read Renee's profile. It's brilliant. She's been interviewed in that and, and featured and it's, it's, it's gorgeous. And I think you'll find just as much in- inspiration there as you have from hearing from her today. Although... I'm honored that I got to have this conversation with you directly. So last question is, how can people find and follow you and your work online?
1: Well, I'm on all social media platforms. Most people reach out to me uh, via LinkedIn, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever. I, I always respond and I, I do uh, some mentoring uh, with uh You know, Women in AI Ethics, another great organization that has been bringing a lot of diversity, equity and inclusion to the space. And another organization that has been celebrating, of course, Black Women in AI, which is uh, so important, Black and Brown Women in AI, which is really critical at this time. So, uh, yeah, so whenever they reach out, I always respond. So
0: Wonderful. You, You heard it here, people. You can reach out do your own interview, bring Renee to more stages and more platforms because this creativity needs to be heard. I, I love the compassion and the creative approach that you bring to this and obviously your passion. It's, it's so clear what comes through. So I want to thank you very, very much for joining me here today. Uh, and thank you to all our viewers and to our listeners on the podcast. And thank you again, Renee.
1: Thank you for the extraordinary work that you're doing. It was an honor being with you. Thank you. It's
0: very kind. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Tech Humanist Show. You can find more information about the show's guests and links to their projects at thetechhumanist.com, where you can also find more episodes, or you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate O'Neill. Join me next time for more about how data and technology shape the human experience.